0: Episode 148, Mail Carts. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a December 14th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Museum of History. In this series, we talk to museum experts to get the story behind the story about artifacts from Kansas history. Let's go! Party Rock is in the house tonight. Everybody just have a good time. We're make you lose your mind. Today, Twitter and Facebook are the preferred methods of communication for legislative bodies. In the mid-20th century, though, the Kansas legislature used a more utilitarian method, two wooden mail carts. Join Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine carts used to deliver mail in the Kansas State House in Topeka. Previously used for delivering vegetables and spreading fertilizer, these carts proved just as effective for transporting democracy. Then, we go behind the scenes to discuss a gallery guide for the museum's upcoming map exhibit, You Are Here, Putting Kansas on the Map. Find out what it's like to look at a map about maps. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany. Educated to be a physicist and chemist, Merkel is certainly not the type of German Chancellor that White knew, but first, mail carts. Hello, Nikayla.
1: Today, we're going to discuss a pair of carts used to deliver mail in the Kansas State House. The carts are very utilitarian, and they give us some insight into how business was carried out in the Capitol before technology took over. Yep. So, Merle, can you describe the mail carts for us, and were they originally designed for mail delivery?
0: Uh, Yeah, I can describe what the carts look like. So... The first cart, I mean, think of a cart as in a um, something that moves cargo, right? Mm-hmm. So the first one, and they're not exactly alike, the two mm-hmm. carts look different. Um, the first one is a large oak, kind of flat or really shallow uh, hand cart with big steel spoked wheels. And so it kind of looks medieval. Okay. You know, it, it's not motor-powered or anything. It looks, it right. looks uh, very old. Nothing um, fancy. And it was, it was made in the 1940s by the Hamilton Castor Manufacturing Company of Hamilton, Ohio. And it's oak, so it is really solid, and it's really pretty heavy. But yeah. What's cool is it's surprisingly easy to push. So it's well-engineered and well-designed. You can really kind of push it around. The second cart is not so solid. It's a little more rickety, and it's, uh, it's kind of a pine cart with tall sides and really wide wheels that sort of drop down. It was made in the 1920s, and it's actually made in Kansas City by the Lansing Wheelbarrow Company. Um, so both carts were used to, to deliver mail inside the State House or the Capitol Building, State House, Capitol Building, interchangeable terms. They're all mm-hmm. located here in Topeka. And so they were used in the 1940s, but you have to kind of think back to how a government functioned, Uh, not a modern government, but a government of the 1940s, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So mail, uh, these carts were used to deliver mail. Mail is really the primary form of communication. It is the official form of communication. You know, before the heavy advent of the telephone, it was really the only form of communication, especially when you lived in a large state like Kansas or Topeka's towards the east and you got a lot of mileage Mm -hmm. to reach your constituency uh, out in rural western kansas Mm -hmm. so this was the primary mode means of communication for elected officials today we have instant communication like uh email twitter um cell phones you can immediately talk to each other but you couldn't in the 1940s and prior to the 1940s you couldn't Mm -hmm. Um, the thing with that is that the the our nation's founding fathers like they realized the value of of mail because mail's more than mail it's democracy it's being able to voice your opinion right i know it's funny to say the us postal service is democracy in action <laughs> sounds so patriotic yeah but it is <laughs> uh, it's the only way and they actually tasked Benjamin Franklin before we were even a nation he got tasked with uh, the second continental congress said start coming up with a postal service
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and it wasn't just so people could send junk credit card applications out. It's because they knew as a government they had to be responsive to the people, and there had to be a mechanism for it.
1: So we, sh- we should probably call these freedom
0: carts then. If you'd like, <laughs> freedom, <laughs> freedom carts. Freedom carts. Um, so both carts were used to deliver mails, but they also did something else. They delivered bills in the nineteen forty. Neither cart was originally made to do that, to deliver mail or for that purpose. Um, the oak cart probably was actually made to be a vegetable cart. But it had a dual use, uh, and it wasn't uncommon for people to be using them in in industrial areas. And in fact, it was sold by the uh, Crane Office Supply Company in Topeka. It's got a label on it that says Crane Office Supply, Topeka, Kansas. So that's who sold it to the legislature. The other one Clearly, was not intended to be office use. I mean, it's designed to be pushed down fields for mm-hmm. row crops to yeah. spread fertilizer. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, somebody repurposed it and used it used it in this state house, and I think they kind of <laughs> they kind of referenced to that sort of stingy yet um, shining example of government efficiency.
1: So, Merle, why were the mail carts necessary? We've we've heard a lot lately about. The postal service kind of becoming obsolete, and that they're only delivering junk mail and advertisements. So, is that what these cards were delivering?
0: The cards are necessary because the Kansas legislature um, it, it gets a lot of mail.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you think about it: there is 125 state representatives and 40 state senators, and those are just the elected people that work in the state house. There's a whole staff of people that work uh, work year work year round. But mm-hmm. that's that's 165. Uh, government elected officials that are all getting mail and corresponding with all their constituencies and all the organizations they're associated with. So there is a, a lot of mail. But the cards were used for more than just mail. Um, each day when the when the Kansas legislature is in session, because it's only in session for a certain period uh, during the year, it's a ninety day period. Mm-hmm. Um, And while it's there, there's a lot of business that has to happen. So things have to be organized, and they have to function quickly like a well-oiled machine. And I know that sounds goofy. For legislators to be able to legislate, they have to see the proposed bills. They have to have agendas for every meeting. They have to have minutes from every PATH meeting typed up. There's a lot of documents that have to be produced on a daily basis just to keep the thing flowing. And so those were done every night. And it required these carts every morning to go to the state printer's office, which was located near the state house, to pick up this huge volume of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly mail. It's different than mail. And so all this stuff had to be brought from the state printer's office uh, into the legislative chambers.
1: So how was the legislature arranged when the carts were used? Did they deliver directly to the legislators' offices or a mailbox or what did they do?
0: Right. So let's talk a little bit about the Kansas legislature and what it's like. Um and in 1861, probably right up until the 1930s and 40s, state government's pretty austere. I mean, it, cons- it consists of a couple people working at agencies, and it consists of elected officials. Um, but that's about it. As the state's population begins to grow and people begin to realize that uh, how much the state government can do, and it increasingly assumes more roles and more tasks and is accounting for more people, um, it's a bigger job. And so now they're starting to hire people to work in the State House. There's more information flowing. There is more mail coming in. Mm-hmm. So the legislatures, its responsibility grows and the support staff that help it. Okay, so even up until the nineteen fifties, today if you go downtown in Topeka, Kansas, there's a state house, but there's also a lot of state offices around it. Mm-hmm. Legislators, they all have offices of their own assigned to them to work out of. And it's, it's logical, you know, they need a base of operations, they need a place to put their file cabinet, they need a place to set up their laptop computer. Until the 1950s, they didn't have those offices. They had one place, one workspace, and that was on the floor of their respective chamber. So they didn't have offices even to receive mail. So when mail did come in, it went through a post office that was actually built inside the Capitol, and then that would get delivered to sort of central mailboxes mm-hmm. where the legislators could stop by at their time and pick up. Pick up whatever mail they might want to pick up. Uh, There are two cards because there's two chambers in the Kansas legislature. So one for each. Right. Just like in the federal government, there's a Senate and there's a House of Representatives. In the Kansas legislature, there is a Senate and a House of Representatives. And I think there is in every state legislature except for one. Nebraska. Huh,
1: that's interesting.
0: <laughs> they have the unicameral government.
1: So did I wonder if they had two people or if they just had one poor guy who had to get one cart and go to the Senate and then run back and get the other cart. No, I think out. there was
0: two schleps that had to go push around this cart all over the place. Okay. Um but yeah, and how so how do we know that it was broke out like that? Fortunately, they're marked that way. <laughs> One of them's got House spray-painted on the side of it, yeah. which indicates that it was used for the uh, House of Representatives. And it makes more sense, too. It's the bigger of the two carts. Right. And with 125 members in the House, there would be more, a larger volume of mail. Mm-hmm. Smaller cart for the Senate, less mail.
1: Well, these, these poor schleps who were carting around these, these freedom carts, if you will— <laughs> we all know that the mail couldn't be delivered without that dedicated mail carrier. That's true. So now we're going to play a little game I like to call Real, Fictional, or Dead, which Ooh. is basically a, ver- a, a mail carrier variation on Canadian or dead. Right, right. I'll give you a name, and you tell me if he or she is a real mail carrier, a fictional mail carrier, or dead. Okay. All right? We're ready. Okay, the first one. Ace Frehley, the lead guitarist for the rock band KISS.
0: I'm going to say he's a real postman. He was, yeah. I know. But you know what? This, this He, a KISS, a band member, that's what I picture every postman is like when they go
1: home. <laughs> you think They so? just get freaky. <laughs> you wonder if he delivered the mail with all of that black and white makeup on his face. <laughs> Kept race.
0: the dogs away.
1: <laughs> all right. Your second one. Mr. McFeely, mail carrier to Fred Rogers.
0: Right. He was a fictional mail carrier and of a fictional age.
1: Yeah, poor guy.
0: Right. He wore a costume to make make himself look old. Yeah. I don't understand why.
1: It's too bad because a mail carrier could be young. Absolutely. Okay, Steve Carell, a.k.a. Michael Scott from The Office.
0: I think he was a fictional postman. Wasn't he a postman of Bruce Almighty?
1: He was also a real postman
0: he was a real postman
1: according to wikipedia he delivered mail
0: oh wow yeah
1: wouldn't that be cool he's got
0: the look of a postman he
1: could pull it off i think so and finally benjamin franklin statesman and founding father
0: uh well as i mentioned earlier uh not only was benjamin franklin a postman but he was the supreme postman (laughs) he was the postmaster general the
1: father of all post (laughs) postal carriers right and trick question because he's also dead
0: yeah he is dead oh sorry
1: (laughs) That's alright, good job. Alright, thanks for <laughs> right, for telling
2: us about To Thrive came to win. Survive. Prosper.
0: Every day, workers at the Kansas State House stroll under the blazing glare of a convicted traitor. He is the subject of today's Kanza quiz. Painted by native Kansas artist John Stewart Curry in the 1930s, this menacing figure stands at the center of a massive mural with a Bible in one hand and a rifle in the other. Before him, crowds of men come to blows and behind him, tornadoes and wildfires terrorize the plains. Together, the powerful painting is entitled The Tragic Prelude. Who is the ominous figure featured in the center of this classic painting. On January 20th, 2012, the museum will open the exhibit You Are Here, Putting Kansas on the Map. From telling us where we are, to telling us where we shouldn't be, maps have shaped the way we see the world. Today, we go behind the scenes with Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman to discuss a gallery guide that will guide you through some of the most dramatic maps in Kansas history. Nikayla, we are looking at a gallery guide for an exhibit entitled, You Are Here, Putting Kansas on the Map. Why do an exhibit about Maps. Why maps? We don't even use maps anymore. We have we have digital we have devices that show us where to go.
1: Sure, they're just like an advanced version of maps, though. But if our museum only did exhibits about things we still use, we'd really be limiting ourselves in time period. True,
0: true. <laughs> Most of our stuff is stuff that people don't use anymore. Yeah,
1: because we're a history museum. Uh, maps are a good tool um, to use to track how our state has developed and changed over time. Um, the maps in this exhibit show our state in every phase, from the earliest exploration before it came Kansas was even a thought to modern highways and tourism. Uh-huh. Uh, but if you look closely at a map, you can see a lot of really interesting details. And I know that the entire exhibit team has really gotten caught up looking at the maps, and you can you can spend a good amount of time just getting caught up in the details.
0: Right, because maps tell you more than just how to get from point A to point B. Right, exactly. they tell you literally mm-hmm. about the landscape that people are living on. Mm-hmm how people organize themselves mm-hmm. where they're living around
1: mm-hmm. land formations all of that kind of stuff
0: Exactly. So they're really a powerful a powerful tool for documenting culture and mm-hmm. humanity in general. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a gallery guide here today which is a little booklet, little piece of paper mm-hmm. kind of thing. Can you tell me, what is the function of a standard gallery guide? And uh, I think it's somewhat appropriate for an exhibit about maps, yeah. right? Yeah,
1: it's kind of a map in its own way. A gallery guide is typically used to orient the visitor in an exhibit, much like a map is used to orient people to where they are.
0: Right, so if you think of like an eight and a half mm-hmm. by 11, a standard sheet of paper folded in half, mm-hmm. inside you look down, it's kind of a bird's-eye view of an exhibit, and it shows right. you how to get around in it.
1: Right, and we use them to point out interesting artifacts or features. And it's also a way to pass on additional information that we might not have been able to include in the exhibit labels themselves just because you don't want things to get too lengthy. You want to keep things short and keep people interested. But you can use the gallery guide to kind of supplement that. Mm
0: -hmm. Who developed this particular gallery guide and how is it different than other gallery guides? Because what we're looking at today is the one that was was made for Mm -hmm. the maps exhibit.
1: Right. Well, this guide was developed by Sarah Bell, who is one of our education interns. And I know the education staff has been working very hard on getting this guide together in time for the exhibit. Um, it is different from other guides in that um, it includes activities to engage the viewer with the maps. Um, the activities ask the viewer to look closely at the maps and pick out details and kind of answer some, some fill-in-the-blank type questions. And if you complete the activities, you win a special prize at the end. So that's a little different from our other our general gallery guide.
0: Nice. So this guide actually references a very old map that uses the term Terra Florida. Mm-hmm. Why would a map of Kansas say Terra Florida?
1: Well, at that point, you know, exploration really hadn't moved too far to the West. By
0: what what point? What time period are we talking
1: about? Well, this is pretty early. This is like, I think, uh, 1700s maybe. So, you know, it was still not that much was known about the western portion of the United States. And Florida on that map is kind of like as far west as they've gotten. Right. So the earliest explorers um, to North America didn't necessarily speak English. They wrote their maps either in their native language, which would usually be Spanish or French, or in Latin, which at that point was kind of the universal language. So Terra is Latin for the land of. So Terra Florida means the land of Florida. And technically, Florida was the name given to that area by Ponce de Leon, who was a Spanish explorer. And he visited Florida in the spring when everything was in bloom. So he referred to the land as Pascua Florida or Flowery Easter. So technically, Terra Florida would roughly translate to the land of blossom
0: so the map we're talking about it's actually the i believe it's the oldest map in our collection the map that features the uh, a very rough a very rough <laughs> drawing of what uh, north america and south america look like mm-hmm. um, and references terra florida it's the earliest map in the museum's collection i think it comes from the 1500s right um, so another map featured in the gallery guide is the T and O map. Right. Uh, why this map is odd because it doesn't it doesn't look like a map? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it doesn't look like a real map. So why is that, and why is it called the T and, T and O map?
1: So you don't think you could get from Europe to Africa using a T and O map?
0: Is I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. The, the T and O map was created before exploration had really reached the point that land masses and waterways could be definitively mapped out um The one that we're showing in the exhibit dates from the 15th century, but the design is actually based on a map drawn in Spain in the 7th century. And at that point, people didn't even think you could cross between the hemispheres. Right. So they were basically... Those
0: people were thinking you were going to fall off the edge of the earth. Exactly.
1: Um, This included what they believed were the habitable parts of the earth, and to them, it was a real map. Um, It's called TNO because the design shows a letter T inside a letter O. Uh, The T is formed by the Mediterranean, the Nile, and the Dawn. And the O is the ocean that surrounds the continents of Asia, Europe, and Africa, or the known point part of the world at that point.
0: Mm-hmm. So to give people a visual of what this map looks like, it doesn't mm-hmm. look anything like a map. It's like a circle with some lines in it.
1: Right. And it's got it's got areas marked Asia, Africa, Europe. Right. And like Mediterranean, Nile, Dawn. But that's it. There's not and things are not The land masses don't have a shape like we think of them today. They're basically just like a rectangle and two little squares. Right. Yeah.
0: So when will the exhibit open, and how long will it be up?
1: Well, the exhibit opens on January 20th, just in time for Kansas Day at the museum, and it will close on April 29th.
0: And where do I get, where would I get this gallery guide?
1: Well, you can pick up your gallery guide when you pay your admission in the museum store.
0: Oh, and they'll hand it to me. Yeah. Excellent. So we've talked about, there's lots of maps. And you know what? We're going to be talking about a lot of these maps until the exhibit opens. Um, So I didn't want to, you know, spill all the beans here. Mm -hmm. But um, do you, because there's a lot more maps involved in this this exhibit. Do you have, Mm -hmm. do you have a personal favorite map?
1: I don't know that I could limit it to one. I really like the um, 1560 map that we were talking about here and the other maps in the exploration section just because of the things we talked about here, the comparison to what it is now and how Uh different and what they were able to tell. you know, from what they had explored at that point, and also uh, there's another section in the exhibit that focuses on towns in Kansas and how they developed. And to do to illustrate that, we use Sanborn maps, which uh-huh. were fire insurance maps um, that were created beginning in the 1860s. And I think they're really fascinating because you can find out exactly what existed down to the street level and what the buildings were constructed from mm-hmm. on those maps. They're, I mean, you can really spend a lot of time looking at things. They're really cool.
0: Excellent. All right, Nikhela, thanks for telling us about the uh, MAPS exhibit gallery guide.
1: You're welcome.
0: I'm Merle Riedel with the answer to today's Kansa quiz. We asked you to name the central figure in John Stewart Curry's mural, The Tragic Prelude, housed in the Kansas State House. The answer is John Brown. Considered by many to be both freedom fighter and terrorist, John Brown spent time in Kansas, working to end slavery through often violent methods. After later attempting to start a slave rebellion at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, Brown was convicted and then executed. Today, he is the only traitor to be proudly featured In a statehouse mural. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is TOUR's coordinator, Abby Perrin. Hi. And registrar, Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Today, we connect White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, and by all accounts, the most powerful woman in the world. Abby, you want to give us uh, some background on Chancellor Merkel?
2: I'd be happy to. Although most powerful woman in the world, I have a feeling Hillary might. Ever...
0: Nope. <laughs> Forbes. Forbes magazine placed Angela above Hillary. Oh, she was wow. number. Hillary wow. was number two. All
2: right. Well. If Hillary has a problem, she can take it up with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Angela Dorothea Kosner-Merkel was born in 1945 in Hamburg, Germany, the daughter of a pastor and English teacher.
0: Which is funny, because an English teacher in Germany is like kind of different than an English teacher in the U.S., right? You're probably yeah. actually teaching English.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's true. Well, as a child, she and her family lived in communist East Germany, where she served in the free German youth.
0: Which is different than your typical German youth, <laughs> just to be clear. Free German youth. Free German youth is socialist, not Nazi. Right, right.
2: <laughs> but, uh, as a college student, she studied physics, became a skilled speaker of Russian, and wrote her doctorate on quantum chemistry. So is that all. That's it, you know. <laughs> and then became the school. chancellor. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. And then the political... Hmm. the top of the political hierarchy yeah. interesting yeah.
0: see what happens when you get those science degrees Like you really can't do anything mm.
2: <laughs> they they aren't lying when they say yeah. that you can do anything with this degree <laughs> that's true, you never hear, got a museum studies degree right. <laughs> to rule the world yeah. <laughs> Well, after German reunification in 1989, Merkel became politically active. Uh Aha, that's where it came about. Mm -hmm. Uh, She became politically active and was elected to the German Congress. In the 90s, she became the protege of Helmut Kohl, Germany's longest-lasting modern chancellor, which put her on track to assume the chancellorship in 2005. Her tenure, as we have seen lately, has been defined by her response to the European debt crisis. Which, boy, if we can get past this, I'm I know, be happy. pretty <laughs> tired of hearing
0: about it. Every and I think point. we we are more familiar with the French with the French and German heads of state than we ever wanted to be in the past. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah,
2: that's true. Well, as leader of Europe's most powerful economy, Angela Merkel has become the de facto leader of the European Union. She is the only German chancellor born after World War II, and she is relatively young. And her position of Frau 9, which I think is a great, great take on it. Frau 9. Um, she's also called the Iron Girl. Um, so she may prove to outlast the eu yeah we'll
0: see where it goes hmm. i love those nicknames Frau nine and iron girl <laughs> um thanks abby now to the game as a contestant abby you will hear two chains of connection between william allen white and chancellor merkel you must pick the true six degrees of william allen white from the false oh gosh nikayla <laughs> you will go first
1: Okay, well, in 2007, Angela Merkel chaired the G8, or Group of Eight Forum. Uh, The G8 started out as the G6, and then it was the G7, um, and now it's the G8. So it's a forum of the eight major world economies. Um, The G6 was formed in France in 1975. um, And as a member, the U.S. is always represented by the president, who at the time in 1975 was Gerald Ford. Well, Ford was introduced to politics while serving on the campaign of Wendell Willkie. Wilkie Mm. ran for president against incumbent FDR in 1940. Good luck. Mm. (laughs) And during that campaign, William Allen White frequently wrote Wilkie letters of advice on how to win the campaign, including little gems like, don't attack the president, attack the New Deal. Um, And he also lobbied Kansas delegates to the Republican National Convention to cast their votes for Wilkie to be the Republican candidate.
2: Really? Yes.
0: Very impressive. As a conservative female European head of state, Merkel has often been compared to Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, thus the nickname the Iron Girl. Iron Girl. Uh, Thatcher was the Prime Minister of Great Britain in the 1980s. She worked closely with George Herbert Walker Bush in coordinating the response to Iraq's 1991 invasion of Kuwait. George Herbert Walker was the son of Prescott Bush, a former senator from Kentucky and patriarch of the powerful Bush family dynasty. During World War I, Prescott served as a field artillery captain. Following a a battlefield injury, Prescott Bush spent a brief period recovering at a Red Cross hospital where he met a budding journalist on assignment with the Red Cross, and that journalist was named William Allen White.
2: So it's up to me to figure it out, right? So one
0: of us is lying.
2: Well, I feel like both of you had really solid explanations, but I noticed something that Merle said that stuck out in his his uh, explanation here. Yeah, and that was that uh, Prescott Bush was the, a senator from Kentucky.
0: Oh, did I say Kentucky? Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes.
0: Well, he's from Connecticut. Yes. Yeah.
2: Which I thought was he was from Connecticut, so I'm I'm gonna think that Nikayla had the correct answer. Hmm. That's correct. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> wow, attention to that. detail. Like Connecticut. I don't. Of all Kentucky the gibberish I put
0: in there, you caught the Kentucky thing. I, I don't think the
2: bushes are have any any uh, Kentucky connections. Yeah.
0: Well, I was surprised. I thought it was all Texas connection. I didn't know that they had ever really lived in Connecticut.
2: Well, and they've got the the whole Kennebunkport, Maine compound. Mm-hmm. Uh, the yeah. Bush compound in Maine. That's true. Mm-hmm.
0: You always, you know, as a, as a senatorial or dynastic family, you got to have a compound somewhere. I, mm.
2: Yeah. That'd yeah.
0: Weird. <laughs> All right. Uh, Nikaela, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure.
1: For the next episode, we want you to connect William Allen White to Kansas's most premier attraction, <laughs> Prairie Dog Town in Oakley, Kansas. <laughs> Say it again. Prairie Dog Town.
2: Prairie Dogs.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Home to bizarre three-legged cattle and the world's largest prairie dog, this private zoo has freaked out travelers (laughs) along Interstate 74 years. Yes, indeed.
0: Uh, Come back in two weeks when we connect white to prairie dog town. (laughs) Regardless of any connection to white, who even cares, this place (laughs) is truly a sight to be seen. All right, thanks, ladies. Thank you. That concludes episode 148, Mail Carts. If you would like to see the mail carts that brought democracy to the Kansas State House, go to our website, kshs.org. Come back in two weeks, when curator Blair Tar and I examine an artifact that might be among the oldest in the museum. In the 1500s, a Spaniard named Francisco Coronado went on a legendary search for a city of gold. The journey brought him through Kansas, where he may have dropped a sword. Was Coronado onto something when he came to Kansas looking for a lost paradise? Find out in two weeks. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Museum of History. Real people, real stories.